I was going to look up what the opposite of adjourn was because, like, f- I want to formally call this podcast to. Oh, call this meeting to order. Yeah, I want to do what that is. Because um, <laughs> it's been so long since we've met. Yes. Reconvene. Reconvene. Yes, reconvene. That is exactly the word that I wanted. Did you ever do student council or any of those like kinds of? I did student council and I did student council so hard I got sent around on national student council trips. Oh, incredible. It's not. But anyway, what was your question? I was like honor society. I like was honor society president or some ridiculous. I don't remember at this point, but some bullshit. But you had to do that like. This meeting is called to order. We're going to take attendance. Mm-hmm. Then this meeting is adjourned, and we had a little thing. And I look back, and I was like, I was like fourteen. I need to just like chill out for two seconds. But anyway. it also feels a little comical being fourteen year olds going, "All right, I'd like to officially call this meeting to order." Meanwhile, the world is on fire. Yeah. Yes. Time to play pretend that mm-hmm. everything is fine. Yes. <laughs> so. Uh, hi, uh, I'm Rowan Hall. Everything is fine. And I'm Tracy Harrison, and it's all good. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm Spencer Stark, and everything is on fire. No, Spencer, oh, go again. Sorry. <laughs> I'm Spencer Stark, and this is fine. Everything's fine. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> we got this, baby girl. <laughs> And this is Willing and Fable, the podcast that brings you original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. Each week, we research a topic from history or mythology, and then we write an original story to go along with that topic. So if you'd like to support our show, consider telling a friend about us. Or a foe about us. Daniel, Ooh, right? No? Yeah. yeah? I mean, cool. Okay, yeah, great. Amazing. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> I think it's worth acknowledging that we are all such little gremlin weirdos yes. today because, well, I will only speak for myself. I just crawled out of the hole that is COVID. I had COVID. I shut all the windows. I laid on the floor. I laid on other floors. I just really moved around my apartment like a ghost. And I don't recall a single thing from the last odd week. So... I don't know about you guys. I'm proud of you that you made it through. I'm proud of you. And I was just sitting here thinking about how relatable it is to say I laid on my floor. I laid on other floors because (laughs) (laughs) I felt that in my bones. (laughs) The floor is the best place. Yes. When I used to work in a place that's way more corporate than where I work now, uh, I became the floor gremlin. Um, So it. I it was full of people that were like doing important grown up people jobs, calling meetings to order, and yes. calling meetings to order, and doing number things and uh-huh. thinking about things really hard. And I was just a little creative gremlin, and so uh, I would just lay in the middle of the floor, and everybody would walk by and be like, "Are you okay?" And I'm like, "Yeah, this is just where I." This is just, just where I, I want to be. Right. Yeah. But it really showed me like, oh, you can't just lay in the middle of the floor at work sometimes. And that made me sad. Did you ever just hiss at them? No, no, because they were all really nice. They just were like, are you okay? Are you having a crisis? Because I think if they laid on the floor, it would be like a thing, TM, right? right? Yeah, right. it would be like a big deal. And I'm like, I would lay on the floor looking up at the ceiling because that's creative. That's how creative energy is like. 
generated, right? You just think about a bunch of things, and then and then the last ten percent is actually doing the thing. So <laughs> yeah. Anyway, we have like, a guy who works on my floor who he doesn't sit on the floor, but he is known to just like run. And the first time it happened, I got very concerned. And someone just looked at me like, oh, yeah, he just does that. It's just faster and he doesn't care. So uh, that's <laughs> he just runs. Just, he'll just get up and just run to where that's he needs to be. Awesome. And he's one of the most brilliant people I've ever met. So everyone's like, yeah, he's really, really smart. So he can just be barefoot and run whenever he wants. How smart do you have to be to earn that? level of odd behavior very rowan very this guy is like (laughs) i'm proud of him honestly he's he's such a nice guy and he's brilliant and it's delightful to watch him but yeah the first time he ran i was really scared and confused and my my coworkers around me were like oh yeah that's so and so they just do that not to sound totally like an artist uh but going back to kind of corporate culture why did we all decide that ties are fancy because they're really just like strangulation devices. Do you want a joke answer or my speculation on the real answer? I want your speculation <laughs> on the real answer, of course. I want both. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, no, I don't. I didn't have a joke answer prepared, so I need to think on that one. Um, but the, my my theory on the real answer is that ties come from a long history of men's fashion wear. Uh, think about the cravat before the tie. It was always a staple of men's fashion. And so as we transitioned into modern clothes, it still stuck around in its own way. And then I know in kind of the finance world, um, putting effort into the way you looked made people equate you being competent with their money. And so it became the norm to dress very well in a three-piece suit, which is why uh, some of those companies are still holding on really tightly to that business attire culture because the interpretation is that it means we're good with money wow the joke answer is haha um tie funny because then when you're on the floor you only have to sit up two-thirds as high to grab them and pull them down to your level and hiss um uh, that one (laughs) uh did you ever sit on the floor as a during like quiet reading time in school was that like a yeah, yeah, I did. Um, although most time in school was quiet reading time for me, regardless of what was actually happening. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I haven't had quiet reading time in school since the object of school was to sit on the floor. Like you were of an age where the floor was the most likely place for them to sit you. We had these awesome chairs called whistle chairs. They were like these yellow uh, these yellow kind of beanbag chairs, but they were in the shape of a whistle. And everybody fought over them because there were two of them and everybody fought over them and i remember uh kids just like shoving each other off of the chairs just to be able to be because you couldn't sit on the floor you could sit on your desk or you could sit in a whistle chair those are the two options and i was like you know in like i don't know first grade or whatever so kids would get in literal like fights over the chairs anyway i was a whistle chair kid Uh, as much as humanly possible, I would sprint to the whistle chair. I was I was like the guy that you work with. I would sprint to the whistle chair. I know that kids deal now with a level of bullying that we cannot even fathom, given the internet, as our friend Carlos said the other day, Spencer. But I do think some Lord of the Flies level tussling over essentially a beanbag chair probably builds character. Yeah, I had to hold my ground. 
<laughs> Kids would approach, I'd be like, that's my hist. Hey, you know what's related to none of this and definitely not bullying? If you want to support our show, you can also support the people who support us. If you ever see dice in either Tracy's or my hand, it's exceedingly likely that they are from Greenleaf Geek. It's even more likely that they are the custom-made mm-hmm. dice we got from <laughs> Leah at Greenleaf Geek. She just sent us each a set for Candela Obscura, um, the D6 Shard die. Uh-huh gets rolled more than any other die I've ever owned now. It has to. Because it's so satisfying. <laughs> and it's so clear and distinct, so then you know which die you're rolling for what. It's so good. And they have little little surprises inside each one of them, and they're all different. They're the best. So if you want to shop around at the rest of Greenleaf Geek, head to greenleafgeek.com. And when you do, use the code FABLE, that's F-A-B-L-E, for 10% off your order. Some restrictions apply. Or... You can support the show by whispering a scary story into a jar and then sealing it, thus making your very own spooky jar. But no matter what, we're just happy to have you here. I want a spooky jar. Will you mail me a jar with a spooky story in it and I'll open up the jar and then I'll get the story? Yes. (laughs) This is science. Yeah, I will do that. I will mail you a spooky jar. (laughs) I want one of those tiny, tiny, tiny little jars. You know, the ones you get at like the... Like the little craft stores mm-hmm. that have the tiny little cork. I want that, but I just want a little scream. Just like just a little, <laughs> just a little scream. What about a little boo? Uh-huh. Just a little boo. Yeah, perfect. Is it a one and done situation? Is it like pasta sauce where once you use it up, it's not in the jar anymore? Or is it like a repeating kind of device? That I think depends on how you view air. Is the story in the air or is it in the jar? I'm not wearing a tie. I'm not official enough to make these decisions. <laughs> All right, Trace, give us a recap of last episode. Last episode, we talked about the history of Pompeii, the infamous eruption, and the results immediately after, and not one, but two Plinies. (laughs) This week, we're going to continue on with more about what happened after the eruption of Pompeii. As you know, last week, we mentioned all the titles of our sections. This one is titled Naked People in My 18th Century, parentheses, it's more likely than you think. Trace. (laughs) Incredible. You find joy where you can in this world and making these (laughs) title sections was my joy. (laughs) Okay, so following the destruction of Pompeii in 79 AD, the emperor had guards placed to prevent looting, which is the reason they believe so many of the statues and other valuable items were untouched when Pompeii was unearthed in the beginning of the 18th century. In 1738, Charles VII gained control of southern Italy and prioritized art, architecture, and archaeology. To quote an article from Wellesley College, quote, What was coming to light was an entire urban fabric suddenly stopped in its track, unveiled in all its complexity to modern eyes. What was being unearthed was antiquity itself, reveling in the slightest detail and in its most intimate and secret aspects all the nuances and multiple facets of a former way of life. Gosh, I want someone to describe me the way that article described a destroyed city. Right? It goes on to say that in the 18th century, some of the first reactions to the objects at Pompeii were a mixture of curiosity and disappointment. I take it back. I take it back. (laughs) I take it back. (laughs) 
never dare describe you this way. This is meant for a destroyed city only. <laughs> <laughs> they had not expected to see such mundane objects in ancient Rome, which had been glorified through literature and painting for centuries. But see, this is on them, right? Like, if you get close enough to a person, like, you have to know that sometimes... It's just a person, and, like, you can't expect that it's a god. I need the entire audience to know that both Tracy and Spencer are in therapy right now, and I'm not, and it shows. But see, Rowan, when you said that you wanted to be described like that... (laughs) Yes, I know. Mine's like, I seek outside validation, and you guys are like, when you get close to a person, you have to understand that they are fallible. (laughs) 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 Mm -hmm. Correct. <laughs> but but I do think it's interesting that they were like, oh, we're going to discover like crazy stuff. And it's like, no, nah, it's kind of just it's kind of just people living, which I find fascinating and wonderful. But I could imagine if you had this like, you know, myth, this mythology that's built up around this place, that it would be that that it could be uh, not as exciting to find a fork. What's interesting, the quote then ends by saying, however, nowhere could the difference between the ancient Romans and the 18th century aristocracy be seen more than the difference in attitudes towards sex. While the naked human form had been expressed in artistic representations of the 18th century, it was usually in the context of figure drawing or history painting, while the mosaics and wall paintings told a very different story, a story of the naked human form in action. The ancient Romans were generally more open in their expressions of sex and sexuality, and this intimacy can be seen through the graffiti and paintings in Pompeii. Not only did Charles VII try and hide the excavations of Pompeii, but also some of the objects found, which were later put in a secret cabinet as part of the collection at the Royal Museum. End quote. This is the part where Pompeii gets really fun for me. Yes, it is. This is where Rowan shines. I'm like, ooh, here's what the city was like. Here's what the people were doing when they were living. And they die. And I'm like, on to my next thing. And Rowan's like, this is where I pick it up. (laughs) (laughs) I love that they had a secret cabinet that was like full of sexy things. Oh, yeah. (gasps) The secret cabinet is very cool. And actually, Tracy knows the most about it. No, actually, I think at this point, you've outdone me in terms of secret cabinet knowledge. I the it was so funny doing this research because Tracy rolled in with so much preliminary knowledge of like real useful things that put this disaster in this city in context. And I was like, did you know that there were naked people everywhere and there was a lot of graffiti about penises? Like <laughs> And that is the best contribution of all. Uh, I <laughs> I see nothing. I came in and I was like, I have some initial ideas and way too many thoughts and I don't know where to go. And you were like, death and sex. And we're like, got it. Understood. <laughs> I know nothing. So this is all fascinating. You don't know nothing. I know that Pompeii was buried by a volcanic explosion. And uh, before I should say before I uh, before I started doing research for this, that was all that I knew. So this is so cool. Do you ever think about, Rowan, when we learned all of this stuff that we know? Like, you and I just have knowledge about Pompeii and Rome sitting in our brains. And I couldn't tell you when I learned it. And I kind of just thought everyone also just had knowledge of Rome and Pompeii just sitting in their brains. So I was talking with Spencer the other day, and I was 
crushed to discover that a lot of things that I thought were just normal, standard human experience are not in fact normal. It's just it was only you and me growing up that I had to base my information off of and we were the same. (laughs) And so if the two people are the same, then it's the standard and everybody else was off doing their own thing. So I I think that we thought that this was standard issue human knowledge. Uh Everybody comes preloaded with basic information about Pompeii. Yes. (laughs) I also... I can remember being in our library in elementary school, and I did not like it when you knew things that I did not know. So I... Fun to learn many years later. (laughs) Well, I just wanted to keep up with you. Like, I felt like the... And you and I tend to diverge on our research. I think that's very apparent now. It's true. I learned a lot about witches right, from so you. Right. Went, so I went really hard on witches, and you went really hard on Egyptology, and then I went, this will not do. <laughs> <laughs> and had to circle back to Egyptology. <laughs> Sorry, Spencer. You know, just girly things. <laughs> I'm just a little guy. <laughs> it's my first day. He's just a little guy. Um, do you guys want to describe this fresco of two lovers that was found in Pompeii? This is one of the paintings that was considered so shocking because it shows the naked form in action as opposed to just for viewing. Nobody, no. No, it's barely the cleft of a tush and there is no inaction. It is post-action. Okay. So we're looking at a fresco. It's We're on one of those bed-type things where you know there's not a mattress in sight. And if there is, it's straw, which is not pleasant, I think, for anyone. Uh, For me, it's that there's no – oh, no, I guess there is a back wall to it. My fear is it looked like it was just a flat mattress in the middle of a room, and someone's fallen off one of those sides. Right. No, it looks like a like a lounge. Like a day bed. Like a lounge. Yeah, Yeah, like a day bed. Mm, I thought it was a flat bed – and the man who's – you can only see the back of his shoulders. He's laying down. He's leaning up on one arm. And I thought he was holding the covers up mm. as she's getting up. I think, m- mayhaps, Your Honor, it may be <laughs> – it may be not his arm holding up a blanket, but just a wooden back of a daybed is another potential. So this gal is getting up. Oh, I'm sorry. There is a little side boob. So we're seeing her back. She's reaching back behind her to this gentleman who's a bit tanner than she is. She's a little pale. She's getting up. She's got the kind of reddish brown hair that we don't know if it was the original color or it's just faded. And then there's a mysterious half visible like see-through ghost figure that I think must be because this was painted over. That's what it looks like. Sexier scene. Yeah. And... It's all in shades of gold. There's a little turquoise, but it is not in action. It is post. It's very tame by our standards. I think it's even tame by Pompeii's standards. <laughs> <laughs> There's just a dip in the 1800s where it became risque. <laughs> I I love I love the idea that it's a ghost. It's a ghost just watching them. You know what I mean? Like it's just a little yeah. spooky. A little spooky ghost. Is it a girl or a guy ghost? I think it's a girl. It looks feminine. And I was thinking it looked like a young man. I was thinking or young that man. Too. I could see young man. I could see young man. It looks as though the figure, the figure that is probably 
probably painted over, uh, but that I like to think of as just a little little voyeuristic ghost, uh, might be wearing a shirt. Yeah, I think green, he like might a tank be top. wearing a tunic, but the way that he's standing, I think, behind the painting of the post-coital moment, there could have been something more fun happening for this gentleman that got painted that's, over. Hey, that's true. Because he's uh, standing, he's leaning back, he's looking down appraisingly. He is. But I, I would not say that this is worth uh, uh, ruffling your feathers about. I would agree. Charles VII did not seem to. Well, Charles VII, I think, put it in the secret cabinet. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, maybe Charles VII wasn't, uh, wasn't, wasn't getting enough. So he was like, I just need a little, like... Something just to keep for myself. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, it's his own, his own special little treasure. <laughs> it's his own special thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in 1862, archaeologists began to excavate the two-story brothel, which sits between the form of Pompeii and its main north-south business district. It catered to Roman men who bought sexual services from both male and female sex workers. Interestingly, the site may have been discovered sooner, but 18th century archaeologists found the images, and declared them so shocking that they stopped the excavation. Imagine history being just available enough for you to excavate that you could just say, not that one, and go somewhere else. I know, because I, I do believe they're still working on excavations of Pompeii, but that has more to do with the technology not being at a place where we can safely do it, unless the scandal of revealing anything. <laughs> Well, there were about 25 brothels in Rome, uh, but the Lupinarium was the largest, and it's described as the only purposefully built brothel in Pompeii. The name for these establishments comes from the root word luper, meaning wolf, which was a name used for female sex workers, often comparing them to she-wolves. Why? Why did we get rid of that? I don't know. It's rad as hell. It's especially rad when you know the story of the founding of Rome and that Long story short, there was twins, Romulus and Remus, uh, and they Mm -hmm. were raised by a she-wolf. And suckled on a Mm she-wolf. Does that mean they were raised by a sex worker? Maybe. Maybe. It might. So good. So good. Uh, Do we know was like a she-wolf was being was being thought of as like a she-wolf derogatory in any way? Or is that like something that was. The thing about sex work is it's never good. For the sex worker, traditionally, in in history writ large. Yeah, but it wasn't stigmatized the way that we think of it today. It wasn't, they weren't buttoned up around sex. It it was more like another job, just not a very good one, not a very respected one necessarily. Interesting. Well, yeah, because enslaved men and women were most often Mm -hmm. staffed at the ancient brothels. And uh, they sold uh, physical services while at the same time being expected to provide emotional services to clients through small talk or writing flattering boasts about them and like all enslaved persons their bodies were also vulnerable to sexual assault rape beatings and even torture uh but just the idea that they like were were expected to write flattering Mm -hmm. boasts is so like (laughs) i mean it's it's so fascinating because the idea of being well-spoken and a good orator was so prized so to see it reflected even in in the way that it was expected that you performed sex work is is a fascinating way to see that appear in the culture. Yeah, and I don't think that's changed very much as well. That's true. Hyping up people's egos for money is 
is definitely a part of, I think, many jobs. <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. I would agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sarah E. Bond writes for History Today that, quote, sex workers do not have to be cast as either victims or empowered agents, but can be allowed nuanced identities that incorporate both. Reconstructing the environments of the ancient brothel means that modern audiences can begin to understand its uniquely central and yet marginal position within the ancient city, an existence similar to the workers employed within it, end quote. And I think that's such an important point to make that we don't have to think of these people as either victims or retell the story as they were so empowered and because sex work wasn't looked down upon, they were actually... but. No, it it wasn't a wholly good or wholly bad situation. It yeah. It was nuanced. And we love nuance on this show. We do. So the next <laughs> section is called <laughs> Ooh, Sexy Pompeii. Oh, so good. <laughs> mm, mm, mm. <laughs> So there are numerous myths, in this case, meaning falsehoods and funny stories mm -hmm. surrounding sex work in Pompeii. Uh, I'd like everyone to remember this is a resort town, and I hesitate to put modern sensibilities on it, but I do find myself likening it at times to Vegas. Or maybe, like, mm -hmm. just when folks go down to different, like, all-inclusive resorts, that kind of energy where you're going to behave differently than you might when you're home. The city contained many, many, many depictions of sex acts and penises throughout. In the Lupinarium, for example, there were frescoes of a variety of sex acts on the walls, and some have postulated that this was the menu for the establishment. This was a port city, after all, and literacy among ancient Romans is something that likely varied wildly depending on gender and class. And historians to this day will disagree about levels of education in any given situation. But unfortunately, the images in the Lupinarium were more likely decoration than a specific tool for quote-unquote ordering. Of interest, among the frescoes is a depiction of a man giving a woman cunnilingus. Sex historian Dr. Kate Lister and host of the podcast Betwixt the Sheets discusses this when she guested on the Ancients podcast in the aptly named episode Sex Work in Pompeii. She points out that this is a particularly noteworthy piece because in ancient Rome, this act was not encouraged, and in fact, it was considered a sign that a man had trouble managing penetrative sex that he might consider participating in oral sex at all. And I find this very interesting because in that, like, we want everything to be all good, we want everything to be all bad, women's pleasure still was not particularly highly valued. And I think that's worth factoring into this equation, especially because we're looking at so many pieces of art throughout the city that have to do with sex and i think it would then be easy to be like ah everyone's having a grand old time and i i don't think that's exactly the case especially because wives at the time were not really mm -hmm. allowed out of their homes without either their husbands or a chaperone or uh, an enslaved person who worked for them 
Dr. Lister also points out that the word for pimp in Latin was the same word used to describe those that trained gladiators. And while gladiators, like some sex workers, could rise to positions of great power and had a bit of celebrity, ancient Roman society looked down on those who sold their bodies for any reason. Were women allowed to purchase sex? I know you guys are wondering very seriously. Hey, Rowan, I have a burning question for you. Mm, Yeah, Tracy. Uh, Were women allowed to purchase sex? Yes, yes. Well, let me call this meeting to order. Uh, No. Great. Thank you. Very (laughs) likely they were not. This was a patriarchal society like our own. At one point, women weren't even allowed to sit in the first three rows of an amphitheater because seeing a gladiator so close might cause them to go mad with lust. I mean, if I had a nickel, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) Were there – this is such a – this is such like an uninformed question, so forgive me. Uh, Gladiators were only allowed to be male. Yeah. Correct? Yeah. It was like – it was Jim Bros. Gladiators were were enslaved. That's totally what I thought. Um, They weren't always enslaved necessarily. Um, And they were – even though – Many were forced into it. If you were really good as a gladiator, you were a celebrity. I mean, they're selling cups with your face on it. Think of that like zero to hero scene in Hercules. Yeah. Legitimately that. People like try to collect your sweat and sell it after the games. Incredible. Mm, Is that incredible? I mean, incredible in that like that was occurring. Right, right. Like a souvenir, like you can see souvenir cups in museums. For some reason, the idea of souvenir cups, I know I bring it up all the time. It just kills me that we've always been the way we are. We're like, I like this thing. I'm going to put it on a cup. And when I drink from this cup, I'm going to remember that I like this thing. For me, the interesting thing about gladiators is like famous wealthy people did not become gladiators. Gladiators sometimes made for famous people. Yeah. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of opposite now, like influencer culture. For the most part, you have to have a certain level of wealth to become an influencer. It's not exactly how it worked with gladiators, despite the fact that I guess we're bottling their sweat. So Dr. Lister describes a body that was found in the barracks of a gladiator after the eruption of Pompeii. The story being that this woman came here for one last moment of pleasure before her time of this mortal coil ended. So unfortunately, the the destruction of Pompeii was apocalyptic, and most people were too desperate for shelter to really consider a last romp in the sheets. It's much more likely that this woman was just nearby and went there as a place to hide. Yeah. <laughs> this section is called, Let the Phallus Guide the Way. <laughs> Let us follow. In the sexy lore of Pompeii, there is the famous tale that the just absolutely vast number of phalluses that decorate the city will point people in the direction of brothels. And this is just not true, unfortunately. Uh, There are so many depictions of penises that you would wander in circles around Pompeii if you attempted to, like, follow them, like your Siri navigation. (laughs) Uh, Here is uh, a couple pictures, actually, of phalluses in Pompeii, if you guys want to describe them. Yeah, I can take the first one. Please do. It's a wall that has a, what looks like maybe a, um, (laughs) what is that? Like an, like an, like an, not an atrium. uh, What is that called? Uh, 
um, I mean, it, it kind of looks like it a, looks like the opening a, of a temple, like the entrance with the like the way a kid would draw a house or a gazebo, a gazebo. That's the word I was looking for. I was looking for gazebo. So kind of looks like a gazebo or the entrance to a temple. Hard to tell. It's, you know, the the uh, it's sort of the way that you would draw a house as like a um, uh, in like its rudimentary form where it's a square and then a triangle on top of the square. Uh, and then there are some architectural features in this that <laughs> which I didn't th- th- see yes, the first there, time there that are. I saw we're getting it. There. We're getting there. We're getting there. We're getting there. So <laughs> I'm genuinely tearing up. I was so taken aback and delighted. I'm letting the ground work. So, uh, so we have the the square with the triangle on top to represent the roof, and then a couple of lines uh, for stairs. It's actually pretty ornately done in stone. Yeah, um, beautiful perspective work. Then, then they really get all uh, all fucky with it. Uh, quite literally, uh, there's just a giant uh, carving of a phallus in the center of the house. It takes up. What do we say? Four fifths of the height of the house. Um, seven eighths. <laughs> seven eighths for sure. I would argue uh, <laughs> ten twelfths. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know yeah. what? Row is- <laughs> Always argue ten, ten twelfths when it's actually seven eighths. Um, uh, but the wait, ten twelfths is just it's five, five six. <laughs> Reduce. I will not. Not in the case of a phallus, Tracy. That is not appropriate. (laughs) Um, but there was a very large penis in the center of this, uh, in the center of this Mm -hmm. house or temple or gazebo. But and the part that was, I think, making Tracy tear up. If you if you look closely on the on the roof uh on both the left right and center of the corners of the roof there's little tiny other penises that are carved into the stone that sort of stick out like they kind of look like the things that you put on or that people put on uh the edges of roofs so that pigeons don't land on the roof the thing that's so interesting to me is every single penis in this carving from the largest to the roof decor, the camera left, but in fact, the person's right ball is bigger on every single one. So and it's it's more forward. The other one's tucked back a little. And so I want to know if this artist was whoa it was just that guy's whoever carved it. It was him like looking down for reference. Yeah, I yeah. Think what a it was. polished bronze mirror. <laughs> <laughs> the incredible the next one is is more simplistic uh it's it's just a rectangle with a triangle roof and inside the rectangle is another penis exactly as described before very simplistic it's just the two balls and then the penis yeah, but that's very high up on a building it does look it looks like it is at the roof part of it and it's built in like the bricks so there's bricks in this building and and it was clearly as part of the building of this the bricks go around this structure. Yeah, that's forethought. Yeah. Not to be confused <laughs> with. <laughs> uh, we'll move on. Uh, the thing that intrigues me about this one is in the first piece, the the balls are, are near one another. And in the second piece, those ha- they've never met each other. They don't know. They don't even. They're not even on a first name basis. So look, literally never met. As the representation of a person that contains the anatomy being depicted, I will say that either is totally fine and doable in the same person. They are malleable in where they are positioned. They contain multitudes. 
Yes, of people and or of half people and of positions. Correct. Yes. I'll take the last one because this one just makes me like giggle. <laughs> it's so these stones. You can't tell in the image. I just know from where I pulled it that these stones are very likely in the streets of Pompeii. These large flat stones. Mm-hmm. Someone just did a, a light little carving of a penis in the middle of one of the stones. It's just on the ground. Why? It has the same energy of when you see cement curing and you see someone stick like their hand in it. Oh, no. You know what? It has the energy of um, it, it, uh, when you go to Disney World and you have to follow the little Mickey Mouses around on the ground. Mm-hmm. It's hidden Mickey energy for <laughs> sure. Look, I mean, really, only it's just an extent. It's just Mickey with a it's very so long close. jaw. It is. It's it's really. What is the difference between a Pompeii penis and a Disney World hidden Mickey? It's, it's about, about four, four inches. inches. <laughs> yeah, it's about four inches. <laughs> I don't think any of these Roman men would appreciate if you called their phallus a hidden Mickey. I don't know. Having a big penis was seen as barbaric in ancient Rome. It was better to be seen. And depicted as having a small penis because that meant you were intellectual. That's a really good point, but hidden is a whole different situation. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I do wonder if Disneyland took inspiration from this image and were like, we could just look, we could just change it. You, we can just looking at this, it. like, you know what this almost looks like? If we yeah, just cut off really about close. four inches. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Ten twelfths. <laughs> <laughs> just make it 10 twelfths. Not reduced. (laughs) So the truth is, we have absolutely no way of knowing how an ancient Roman would view all of the penis art in Pompeii. Were they merely symbols of virulence? Were they hearkening to Jupiter or Pripus? Uh, Pripus was a god who we've discussed in the past on this podcast. He famously just had a massively, permanently erect penis. It got in the way of, I can imagine, every single task. Was this art somehow a reference to the more sexual openness of the city or the culture at large? We have no idea. And that is why we in 2023 just sit here and giggle. Well, let's quickly talk about the other city Tracy mentioned a few times, Herculaneum. So the History Channel writes, quote, although located some three miles closer to Mount Vesuvius than Pompeii, The small, wealthy seaside town of Herculaneum managed to dodge the majority of the ash and pumice fall from the first eruption, thanks to prevailing winds blowing the volcanic clouds southeast towards Pompeii and the surrounding area. End quote. Along with Pompeii and portions of its ancient urban sprawl, Herculaneum was declared a UNESCO World Heritage Site in 1997. Named for Heracles, or Hercules, who legend states founded the city, the city was a part of ancient Rome's vacation culture. With a smaller, wealthier population of about 5,000, the city hosts an extraordinary density of lavish houses made of colored marble. While Pompeii is the more famous archaeological site today, for almost 40 years, beginning in 1709, it was the first and only Vesuvian yet uncovered. Story goes that the site was rediscovered accidentally during the drilling of a well. Original digs focused primarily on artifacts, or what would be considered treasures, but over the years, archaeological digs have shifted to focus more on preservation, even choosing to leave portions of the site uncovered. 
The Herculaneum Society writes that unlike Pompeii, quote, at Herculaneum, however, the special conditions produced a unique outcome. The pyroclastic flow of volcanic gas hit the town at a temperature of 400 degrees, which, while instantly killing those who had not escaped, was the right temperature for carbonizing organic materials, end quote. The town was buried under about 75 feet of volcanic material, and the society continues, quote, as a result, not only more durable items like statues, shops, sewers, baths, and a theater were preserved, but also wooden furniture, textiles, foodstuffs, human waste, and books, end quote. The very layer of rock that makes it so valuable also makes it one of the most difficult sites to excavate, which is to say nothing of the modern town that sits above it. Major excavations in 1738 under the patronage of Charles III of Spain, who was building a nearby palace, had an incredible influence on European neoclassicism, and thus on us. The publication of The Antiquities of Herculaneum Exposed between 1757 and 1792, including archaeological finds from both the city Pompeii and the wider Gulf of Naples, was given to select recipients across Europe. By the end of the 18th century, wall paintings, tripod tables, furnishings, incense burners, and more all featured details from this portion of the ancient world. Meanwhile, uncovering Herculaneum essentially opened the perfectly sealed Tupperware of history. (laughs) Uh, Digging exposed the site to air, water, and grave robbers, and the site fell into a, quote, dire state. Of note, there was an effort in 1980 to focus on recovering the skeletons of those who died in the eruption. At the boathouses and ancient beach of the city, Diggs originally uncovered about 55 bodies, overturning the commonly held belief that most of the city's occupants fled to safety. Eventually, 340 to about 400 skeletons, depending on your source, were uncovered, with the analysis painting a clear picture. The majority of men waited on the beach while women and children sheltered and died in the stone arches of the boathouses. Based on his elaborate belt and dagger, one of the men that they uncovered was likely a military officer involved in the rescue mission, and those who fled to the shore were eventually trapped between the effects of the eruption and the sea. As we talked about in the last episode, these people died from extreme heat that caused their hands and feet to contract, which caused their teeth to grind and kind of their bones to warp. I think that this is a particularly interesting site to kind of imagine because previously believing that so many people escaped and then finding so many people in the act of trying to escape is very visceral. Mm. And literally butting up against fire from a volcano, essentially, and the water of the ocean – just feels so primordial. Ooh, that's a good word for it. It's interesting to me that the majority of the men waited on the beach and the women and children sheltered uh, just because they, they it clearly set up some sort of dynamic right. between, between the difference. I mean, it's just a, a very stark. Not to be pessimistic, but I am curious. I wonder what the ratios were because I could also see a possibility being the women held the children back under the arches and the men went out to explore and try and you know more problem solve than stay back and hide 
Like, I wonder if it was a one of two things. Either we're going to put the women and children here and keep them safe yeah. or the women and children chose to be that are stay safe and the men went out and were trying to find solutions or escapes or exits. And that's why they were on the beach. Does that make sense? The difference? Yeah, I-, I think absolutely the men were on the beach trying to work on solutions because there are a number of bits and bobs that I read that talk about like military efforts, which is not necessarily, I didn't get the sense that it was coordinated military efforts, like the Coast Guard is coming to save you so much as it was. There were a lot of members of the military, and there are a lot of ships. Uh, I don't know that, but just from the descriptions that I read, that was kind of the sense that I got. Another fascinating aspect of the city of Herculaneum are the famous Herculaneum papyri. No, you read that. You read that section heading, Tracy. I'll read it. Don't get your hopes up. This one's not clever. It's just unrolling the scrolls, the Herculaneum papyri. It has a rhyme. You don't rhyme every day, okay? That's true. That's true. It feels like the feels like the title of a like a, in in a History Channel documentary from like the early two thousands. It feels like the title that would come up in papyrus font. I'm, and I'm not so kidding. Here for it, Spencer. That is the vibe I was going for. Incredible. <laughs> I love genuinely the day in school when they would wheel out the TV and everyone would groan because they were going to put on a boring documentary was like always my favorite day. Oh, it's the best. <laughs> <laughs> so the Herculaneum papyri. These are part of an invisible library of irreparably damaged manuscripts found in Herculaneum. The approximately 1,100 papyrus rolls offer us a unique window into the classical world. The collection was excavated in the late 18th century and was found in a luxurious home believed to belong to the family of Julius Caesar's father-in-law. Known as the Villa de Papyri, this site produced the only large-scale library to have survived from Greco-Roman antiquity. So cool! Right? So cool. It gets better. (laughs) As of this year, researchers are launching a global contest to read the charred papyri after demonstrating that an artificial intelligence program can extract letters and symbols from high-resolution X-ray images of the fragile, unrolled documents. According to The Guardian, quote, scientists led by Professor Brent Seals, a computer scientist at the University of Kentucky, were able to read the ink on the surface and hidden layers of scrolls by training a machine learning algorithm to spot subtle differences in the papyrus structure captured by the X-ray images. Seals says, We've shown how to read the ink of Herculaneum. That gives us the opportunity to reveal 50, 70, maybe 80% of the entire collection. We've built the boat. Now we want everybody to get on and sail it with us. While the black ink used to write the scrolls cannot be seen on the charred papyri, Infrared images of surface fragments have revealed Greek letters and symbols. Armed with these and X-ray images of the same fragments, SEAL's team trained their algorithm to read the lettering from X-ray images alone. The majority of Herculaneum scrolls analyzed so far are written in ancient Greek, but some might contain Latin texts. There could also be poems by Sappho, or the treatise Mark Anthony wrote on his drunkenness. SEAL's hopes to find evidence of early Christian philosophy. End quote. This is so cool. It's so cool. This is what we should be using machine learning for. Yes, exactly. (laughs) I love when it's used as a tool to help us find information as humans. It's really cool. I was telling Spencer the other day that we were talking about AI. And I was like, I don't know. I just want the AIs to keep me like a little pet. 
like feed me. <laughs> I would Let me love hang that. out at home, laying in the sun while they uncover ancient scrolls. They can read them to me. I'll get in the way when they're trying to work. <laughs> yes, curl up in their lap. <laughs> this is perfect. It's amazing. I just love that we've been able to train AI or some sort of machine learning device to be able to do work using eyes that we don't have. Yeah. Right? Like we're essentially using it as a tool to create the kind of eyesight that we don't have ourselves and then utilizing that to be able to tell our stories. It's basically like whispering into a jar, no? It's exactly the same. <laughs> it's similar to, you know, when computers first came out and thinking of it as it's, you know, it's like using our brain, but with amplified brain power. This is like using right. our eyes, but with amplified abilities. Technology yeah. doesn't have to be scary just because it's new. That's my stance. Right. And I would like to put this in perspective for everyone that when we chose this topic and we started, Tracy was screaming about this particular detail of Herculaneum. And that was so exciting. <laughs> I don't think originally there was going to even be Herculaneum in our coverage to the extent mm -hmm. that we ended up doing it. And that would have been such a missed opportunity because this is the coolest. It's so cool. And I found it in a random documentary in 2019 when they hadn't finished the first x-ray experiment yet and they weren't sure what it was looking like. So it was really exciting to get to visit this years later and see the progress that they've made. Yeah. Now, are they, just so I'm clear, uh, are they, they're asking people to help them read the stuff that they're extracting? Mm -hmm. Is that what they're saying? And, or I think do the extracting depending on if they have the equipment, it seems like. Got it. Okay. So yeah, they're reaching out to people that have the the equipment and maybe even just providing them like the, the machine learning mm -hmm. algorithm or whatever it is. That's so wild. It's so cool. So based on learning about the Herculaneum papyri, I, and really based on that last section of there could be anything in there, I think it's pretty obvious that I went with, I'm going to write what I want to be in the papyri. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so you guys ready for a story? So ready. Very much. Hi, this is Claire Hartford, grad student working on the Herculaneum papyri project. I'm recording this as I'm searching through the results of our scans on three papyri. We accomplished these scans by using advanced x-ray technology pioneered by my doctoral professor, Dr. Addison Fuller. I'll talk about the methodology next time. Right now, I want to talk about the results. Our first pass came up with nothing, which wasn't surprising once we learned that the laser had been misaligned the entire time. And that was the last time we let Gary do the calibrations. And no, Gary, I'm not going to let you live that down. We had to wait a few weeks to get access to the laser again. And Professor Fuller was not happy about it. But even she couldn't get us access any faster, despite, I think, threatening the dean. Once we ran the scans again, we found some, frankly, unbelievable results. The first item was a partial document of ledgers and accounts for the Cassius family. After running the numbers, we did trust Gary with that one at least, we realized that it was a monthly account for the household. Can you believe 
they spent nearly 35% of their monthly income on eating takeout food. Today, the average person spends around 12% of their take-home pay on food. Apparently, the author wrote a note saying that his wife was with child and constantly craved the walnut bread from one particular Thermopylae. I imagine she practically kept a business running on her own, and I bet that was some really good bread. The next item we found were two, for lack of a better term, diary entries from a woman who had just moved to Pompeii with her husband. The dates on the pages say August 20th and October 22nd, and we believe it's from the year 79 AD, just before the eruption, as there are no entries after October 22nd. Here are the entries as translated by my colleague Alex and I. August 20th. Augustus says I will get used to the heat, but I'm not so sure. Perhaps I will learn to tolerate it, though. I look forward to the cooling autumn winds that will soon begin to roll through the city. However, I can't say that I'm entirely unhappy here. The baths alone were worth the journey. Each afternoon, myself and Claudia go there to escape the heat while Augustus finishes with his work. It's so lovely to soak in the cool water and breathe in the fresh air. Having grown up in the countryside, I find the city to be quite a change, and while it required an adjustment at first, I am quite pleased we chose to come to Pompeii. Oh, and the people! They are so fascinating to meet and learn from. In fact, we met a senator just the other day outside the market. I believe Augustus plans to meet with him again soon. I hope that it helps with his career. He's so intent on becoming a senator as quickly as possible. The man's name was Senator Publius Sextus Scipio, I believe. I wonder if I can make friends with his wife. I think her name was Lucretia. Augustus and I plan to attend the theater soon. Perhaps we can invite them along to join us. Anyway, I must go, since we're going to go for a walk now that the weather's finally cool enough to enjoy the night air. Perhaps I can convince Augustus to enjoy a nice meal outside as well. Until then, goodbye for now. October 22nd. Augustus did it. He finally became a senator. Well, if I'm being honest with you, and I feel that I can be honest with you, it's more accurate to say that we did it. This is because I did precisely as I had planned and reached out to Lucretia, the wife of Senator Publius. Never a more unhappy woman have I met in all my years. She seemed to despise me at first. I was afraid there was simply no way I would ever be able to get on her good side. Then, after asking Claudia to investigate, I learned that Lucretia absolutely adores honey cakes and good wine, which is when I concocted my plan. I reached out to her, pretending that I was going to host a dinner soon, and I asked if she knew where to get good wine, and if she had any suggestions for a dessert. Well, that got her talking. She insisted on taking me for a tour of her wine cellar, and afterwards we shared her favorite honey cakes. From that day forward, we were inseparable. I soon learned that it wasn't just me that she despised. It was, well, it was everyone. Her mood is often dour, and her disposition is generally unpleasant but she has warmed to me quite firmly over the last few months. She insisted that her husband become a mentor for Augustus and show him around the Senate, and Augustus used this opportunity to his advantage, as I hoped he would. And now he's taken his own seat. He is to join the Senate officially next month, but we have already begun preparing for a celebratory feast. And yes, 
We will have lots of wine and honey cakes to honor the occasion. This next one is a small parchment that seems to have a birthday invitation written on it. The paper's dark and the text is hard to see, but after we ran it through the scans, we found the handwriting was actually quite delicate and beautiful. The invite reads, I invite you, my dearest friend, to celebrate the day of my birth on December 5th. I'm sending you the warmest of invitations in order to make sure that you come to us and to make the day most enjoyable for me by your arrival. Please give my greetings to your dear Augustus. My alias and little son Tiberius send him their greetings as well. I know the trip is long, but we have plenty of room in the house for you to stay for a visit, should you wish. I hope to see you soon, my dearest Lucretia. Love, Severa. Now this last scroll. This last one is a fully intact, yes, fully intact poem from Sappho. I'm honestly shaking as I look at this. I can't believe we were able to pull this off. Note the unique pattern of her work. Three lines, each with 11 syllables, followed by a fourth line with five. After a few rounds of translation, which, given the nature of her rather obscure dialect, wasn't easy, we came up with the following. Sometimes I wonder if the moon grows jealous, always in the shadows, waxing and waning, while the sun shines brightly on, still unaware, never knowing shade. In my dreams alone, I imagine the moon, full of rage and pain, ready for her revenge. But then she sees the sun smile once again. All suffering ends. You are the sun to me, so bright do you shine. I can't escape your gaze when all shadows flee. Though you burn me when you're near, still I crave you, always wanting more. But no moon am I to you, only a thought, vague and unassuming, in and out your mind. Time dilutes my presence there, now none remains, gone in an instant. You worship your own moon, and she shines for you. Gods and mortals alike trace her skyward path. My eyes follow theirs, entranced. By her beauty, I cannot blame you. Nor can I blame your moon for her gaze on you. Who am I to deny anyone the sun? Though I ache to hold it for myself once more, your love is not mine. Sometimes I think myself the very darkness, existing only for others to shine bright. Perhaps I will find my own light one day soon, glowing in the dark. So while the two of you dance in merriment, your beautiful lips smiling for her alone, I take up my place in the shadows again, a moon of my own. Wow. I can't wait for everyone to find out about these results. I'm so thrilled with all that our small team has accomplished. For now, this is Claire Hartford signing off with hopes that I'll be back very soon with even more finds. So before I dive into it, I found a real Roman birthday invitation. That's what inspired that. Whoa. What? Yeah. I think it's worth flagging that you went back to our dear sweet Sappho. Oh, had to, obviously. As soon as the guy mentioned there could be a Sappho poem in there, I was like, well, there's going to be a Sappho poem in there. 
That made me so happy because I, <laughs> as soon as you mentioned that, my little ears perked up and I love it when you write in sapphic verse. It is so hard for me because it doesn't rhyme and I want things to <laughs> rhyme. <laughs> I, it's even knowing that you wrote it, you, my friend from right now, it still feels unsettling to imagine people from ancient times speaking in such a casual way, doing such normal things. I know we already talked about that earlier in the episode, but that's the thing I can never get out of my head. Mm-hmm. Well, it's funny because as you were reading, it was one of the letters, I think, I think it was the one, um, the August 20th letter, uh, you changed one of the words that was in the, that, that you had written to something else. And my brain went, wait, this is a translation. You can't change. <laughs> the translation is wrong if you change the word. It didn't matter because it, you just changed the word to a synonym that you, I think, in the moment you felt like was better than was on the page. But it was so real for me <laughs> that in that moment I was like, oh, we might have to take that back because it was a different – the translation is a different word. And I was like, no, Tracy wrote this. <laughs> Tracy's allowed to change whatever it is she wants in the moment. But that's how real it felt and I just a testament oh, to like – Oh, that makes me so happy. To like how – yeah, like like and and also doing something and uh uh I I love media that is layers inside of layers. Mm -hmm. So like like House of Leaves is one of my favorite books I talk about all the time, but like this idea of like hey, I'm uh I'm it, you're writing a story about a person who has discovered a letter mm -hmm. and the letter and the person and you are all on different levels of the narrative. Uh, you being the meta narrative, yeah, the yeah. person being the narrative and the other thing being the sub narrative. But like, I don't know. It's just so cool. Uh, it, it, yeah. It also reminded me of like a podcast, I guess, where like they'll. <laughs> uh, yeah. I think Black Tapes or, or yeah. uh, Magnus Archives were there. Magnus Archives or any of those. Yeah. That was the intention. Um, Rowan and I have a few episodes where we've had uh, the stories be a sort of Magnus Archives inspired yeah. Uh, yeah. documenting. 100%. Also, get wrecked, Gary. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely get wrecked. The fun meta behind that, um, I don't know if either of you have played much Mass Effect. No. No. <sighs> I played I played Mass Effect 1. Uh You need to know Mass like Effect 2. Through. So there's if you've played Mass Effect 1, you know, you know the character of Garrus Vicarian. He's uh Oh yeah. He's uh -huh. a character that everyone loves. So in the second game, when you try to talk to him and he doesn't have any dialogue options for you, he just says, "Can it wait a minute? I'm in the middle of some calibrations." And so when I was writing this, I couldn't make Garrus be the one to mess up the calibrations, but I did make it Gary for any Incredible. Mass Effect fans out there. <laughs> I I want to be friends with this fictional person, most especially because she can translate Sappho's writing. Right? <laughs> right? Um, so, Spencer, I don't know how much you know about Sappho, but she actually wrote in a pretty rare Greek dialect, which makes translating her work extra hard. Yeah, I've I've listened to I think the episode mm -hmm. one of the episodes where you talked about Sappho previously, but um, but always so cool. I mean, I just love when you write poetry. I love any episode where where I get to listen to your poetry. It's always so beautiful. It was fun. I had fun inter interweaving each of the pieces. So the Lucretia that mentioned in the birthday invite is the Lucretia who's the wife of the yep, senator. Uh -huh, like uh -huh, that was uh -huh. fun. Oh. Oh, I saw, <laughs> oh, yeah. I saw, I saw all the, the, red all string. the dots connecting. Mm -hmm. I saw the mm -hmm. red string going. Having the wife be the architect of this man's career was also very satisfying. Thank you. Thank also you. Also probably accurate. <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. 
yeah. to the way in which most men are successful. Oh, truly. Um, so if you scroll down a bit, you'll see an example of one of the things that inspired me, which was a real Roman birthday invitation that may have the earliest known female Latin handwriting on it. It's believed that a professional wrote this for the woman to send out to her sister, and it was sent from a fort in Roman-occupied Northumberland, Britain. What? Wait. So, sorry, a professional wrote it, so it was a a, a man trying to write in feminine handwriting? Or it was I a professional woman? I think it may woman? have been a professional woman. Got it. Okay. Wow. The handwriting is beautiful. It's And it looks bluish. Uh, so, th- it is fragmented. I'll call it paper. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's... It looks like when you have a leaf that's all curled up and dry in the autumn and you try to Mm. spread it flat and so it breaks apart Mm -hmm. and you're missing pieces. Uh, So it's, for all intents and purposes, somewhat shredded. But it's so interesting because the handwriting, the ink looks a bit bluish. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, And the, my favorite part about the handwriting is that it's very, like, it, it's filled with these slashes that are are just beautiful. They have varying degrees of thickness. And it's so neat, even though I know that the writing implement must have been a pain in the butt to use. Oh, yeah. My guess is it may have been some kind of glass quill or um, maybe – maybe they, I don't know, actually. I don't know what kind of writing utensils they used. It's just a very vertical writing. I know that it only comes from uh, likely the fact that the pages were next to each other or on top of each other when whatever degradation happened. But but there are two pieces here that are sort of facing one another mm-hmm. as if they're in a book or something. And I was like, what does it look like? But weirdly enough, it looks like a gate with stones that have been stacked on either side. I see what like you're doors. saying. Yeah. And I, I know that's just the degradation of the material, but it is a cool, like, if you look at the, at the space that the letter actually takes mm. up, it kind of looks like a, like an, like a closed gate yeah. with, with stones on either side, which is neat. Do you know what it says, Trace? I do. Thank you for asking. So the letter mm. reads, Claudia Severa to her Lepidina, greetings on 11 September, sister, For the day of the celebration of my birthday, I give you a warm invitation to make sure that you come to us to make the day more enjoyable for me by your arrival, if you are present. Give my greetings to your Cerealis. My alias and my little son send him their greetings. I shall expect you, sister. Farewell, sister, my dearest soul, as I hope to prosper and hail. To Sepulchia Lepidina, wife of Cerealis from Severa. Oh, God, why don't we write to each other like that? I My know. dearest soul. Dearest soul. As I hope to prosper and hail. What really got me was just, I hope that you come to make the day more enjoyable for me by your arrival, if you're present. And also Cerealis. Mm, good name. It sounds like a medicine to me. Oh, uh, no, Tracy. Actually, it sounds like a medical <laughs> condition. No, right. Ask your doctor. Yeah, ask your doctor if, if you have cerealis. Uh, side yeah. Cerealis. yeah, yeah. yeah huh? mm-hmm. This is the way for us every time. I know. I'm sorry. It could be curial, curialis. Listen, I, I told you and guys you before. You can try lepidina for your. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'll never forget being in Latin class in high school and at one point us asking how to pronounce something and our teacher going, it doesn't matter. <laughs> she was like, you can read it's and write language. it. Yeah, she was like, no one speaks it. It's like, great, thank you. This is helpful. Who's going to get mad at you? So I wanted to close up this episode today by reading a few other firsthand bits and bobs found at Pompeii and Herculaneum. They're actually all pieces of graffiti. And the unprofessional wall art is famous the world over and arguably one of the more charming details of this real world time capsule. The ancient graffiti project has worked incredibly hard to preserve and organize these works. Some suggest that the creation of graffiti was a way to boast literacy, but once you hear some of these, you'll have to let me know. And that's something that's been at the forefront of my mind as Tracy's been telling her story, but literacy was not as widespread as we might imagine because so many parts of Pompeii and Herculaneum feel like they could just be today, just a few years back. Uh, and and literacy was not really exactly a part of that, especially if you were a woman. Uh, also, Tracy, Spencer, I have a few for you guys to read, but I tried to pick the most tame ones for you to read so that you wouldn't have to read ridiculous terribleness. <laughs> oh, I'm not shy. I'll read any of them. <laughs> <laughs> so this is from the Lupinarium in Pompeii. <laughs> so... On the top, it says, I screwed a lot of girls here. And then underneath it, it read, On June 15th, Hermero screwed here with Philetaris and Caphasis. Solemnus, you screw well. <laughs> Sorry, do they need more joy in that? <laughs> yeah. Okay, all right, all right, all right. Solemnus, you screw well. <laughs> Gaius Valerius Venustus, soldier of the first Praetorian cohort, in the century of Rufus, screwer of women. Here's one of my favorites, though. Weep, you girls. My penis has given you up. Now it penetrates men's behinds. Goodbye, wondrous femininity. It's from a brothel in Pompeii. <laughs> we were all That's sadder for it, sir. So good. So good. Except any men that has to write that, I bet all the women were like, oh, thank God. Oh, you know it. Yeah. You know it. <laughs> <laughs> I've given you up. Yeah. Tracy, in case you haven't noticed the theme, all the words that I didn't want to pronounce are yours. Yeah, the ones with the, the yeah, the scary words. Okay. You always tell me how to say it. Uh, no, let's do this. <clears throat> Two friends were here while they were. They had bad service in every way. <laughs> sorry, sorry, this is so good. <laughs> Two friends were here. While they were, they had bad service in every way from a guy named Epaphroditus. They threw him out and spent 105 and a half sacerity, most agreeably on whores. That was in the suburban baths of Herculaneum. It's a bad Yelp review. <laughs> it's a bad uh-huh, Yelp yeah, review. Yeah, it's literally a bad Yelp it's review. It's literally Epaphroditus. I'm so sorry, man. This is how you're known in history for that <laughs> one rough night. Epaphroditus got, yeah, it got one starred. Uh... Yeah, no tip. Uh, uh, Spencer, funny. do you want to be the top or the bottom? I'll be the bottom. Okay. Kelidus makes the... <laughs> Kelidus the Thracian makes the girls moan. <laughs> I've always said it. And then Antiochus hung out here with his girlfriend, Kithara. And it's on the gladiator barracks in Pompeii. Ooh. 
I wonder if hung out. I wonder if hung out is a a euphemism. I think they euphemism? were pretty explicit. I would. I think it would have said Antioch has boned Kithara here. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think he was. What if Antiochus is just like I really like my I girlfriend. I just really guys. like her. <laughs> <laughs> I have a girlfriend. <laughs> yes. The, but this graffiti is crazy. Like, this one says, Apollinaris, the doctor of Emperor Titus, shot well here from the house of Gem and Herculaneum. Oh, my God. In, in a house? On a house? Whatever. It's too much. It's so good. It's so good. Hey, sometimes you have to shot well in the house of Gem. Sometimes you know? if you have a really good <laughs> shit, you need to tell people. <laughs> <laughs> People still do this in People bathrooms. People do still do so, this. Like, <laughs> especially in men's bathrooms. Okay, so this is a graffiti conversation written on and in in Pompeii. And it's Severus and Successus, two rivals in love for a barmaid named Iris. This and you so guys good. are going to play the parts. Tracy, you're going to be Severus. Okay. And Spencer, you're going to be Successus. Hell yeah. Successus the Weaver loves the barmaid of the inn called Iris, who doesn't care for him, but he asks, and she feels sorry for him. A rival wrote this. <laughs> Farewell. <laughs> You're jealous. Don't try to muscle in on someone who's better looking and is a wicked and charming man. I have written and spoken. You love Iris, who doesn't care for you. Severus to Successus. <laughs> I love the idea. I know we have more, but I love the idea that at first it just says a rival wrote this, and successes is like I know, I know it, who is. it is. It's I obviously Severus. I know your handwriting. <laughs> so, and you got to wonder if they were friends, right? I know it. They had to have been. Oh they yeah, had to have at least known each other in some way. If they're going it, back, and it's forth pretty like brutal this. though to be like. Iris in particular I'm gonna call her out by name and be like she doesn't like you like that is that's where I'm like maybe they weren't friends because like that's not just silly that's not like ha uh successes as a crush on someone mm -hmm. <laughs> and then and then successes being like well I'm better looking uh clearly says like I you know, is an insult to yeah. this person so it had to have known who, who I want to know was. what wicked means a wicked and charming man. I don't think he means like wicked, bro. Like, <laughs> yeah. I, I think just same way that we, you know, people will say like he's a rogue and a scoundrel. Like, I think it's, mm. yeah. It's a bad boy. He's a bad boy. But I love the response. Just I've written and spoken. You love Iris. Who doesn't <laughs> care for you? Severus <laughs> to successes. <laughs> I, so I mean, is here's the thing. Is Severus in love with successes? Oh. Right? It's a whole different context. The fanfic writes itself. Guys, we need to write some edgy graffiti in case the world ends in fire. <laughs> okay, 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 good. So, Spencer, I pulled this one for you because it's the first nice one, and you're oh. a sweet boy. <laughs> I love this one. This is from the atrium of the House of Panarius. Is that how you pronounce that? Yeah, Panarius. He's not around. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Great, Panarius. Uh, it says... If anyone does not believe in Venus, they should gaze at my girlfriend. That's just sweet. That's just it's nice. Sweet. It's so sweet and juxtaposed with the one that you gave me next. It's I so sweet. I only put butt jokes, mm. but also I wanted our guest to have the nice one. And Tracy, I love you. This <laughs> is from the 
Basilica in Pompeii. These are all three different bits of graffiti from there. Amazing. All right. Mine is just as sweet and thoughtful. So I don't know why you're laughing. It's it's kind of, it's a little weird that you're laughing already because it's so sweet and thoughtful. <laughs> I could caress Venus's ribs with a stick and whip her buttocks with a switch. She pierced my heart and I would gladly break her head with a cudgel. Just a sweet. Jesus. I can't believe this podcast is free. People pay good <laughs> money for that kind of- <laughs> this one is one of my favorites and I've had it in my head and had to not tell you guys about it it's the briefest little sentence and the one who buggers a fire burns his penis at no point is it wrong it's not wrong it's not wrong I mean genuinely no joke wisdom for the ages yeah. <laughs> Spencer I feel like this one sums up all of the graffiti. Yes, absolutely. This is in the Basilica in Pompeii, and it says, Oh, Walls, you have held up so much tedious graffiti that I am amazed you have not already collapsed in ruin. And then, you know, mm-hmm. what happened at Pompeii happened mm-hmm. at Pompeii. So, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah. You might be wondering how I ended up here. <laughs> that's it. I think we that's, did it. that's it for episode two. We are doing a three-part episode mm-hmm. on Pompeii mm-hmm. and Herculaneum and here's how, here's how it happened my friends we each rolled in prepared to do just a little bit and then we all overdid it <laughs> yes yeah we got more acts of god coming your way just wait for it and and spencer's uh story is going to be one of the most exciting unique things we've had on the podcast yet <laughs> mhm so in the meantime Spencer, a wonderful guest of our podcast. Tell us something good. Yeah, something good. Uh, so yesterday, um, we, a, a whole group of us, went to the local game store and we just spent like five hours hanging out and painting minis. Oh, that's so fun. What did you guys paint? I painted my first mini. Spencer brought it for me. It was I a did. tiny baby owl bear. I spent five hours painting it brown. Good. <laughs> Good work. I'm sure it's perfect. It was a sweet little sweet little owl bear. I did a um I did a, a, a big old mushroom uh person. Oh fun. But, um, but like kind of the last of us mushroom person. Like yeah. not cute. Okay. Scary. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was like a scary mushroom person. And then a couple of other friends did uh, like a giant skelly. Fun. That had and... a tombstone for a hammer. Uh, yeah. So cool. So fun. And one of our friends did a shark. A shark. This is amazing. That sounds like such so a good anyway, time. Oh, It was that's just awesome. so relaxing and so nice to be with friends. And it was celebrating one of their birthdays. Mm. So it was, uh, it was just really nice to like hang out and not have pressure of doing a lot anything really yeah. like it was not even like we were playing games or i had to run anything or mm-hmm. you know it was just all of us piled in a room at our favorite game store just talking and listening to music and and painting mini minis which is very meditative mm-hmm. uh for for me so anyway that's awesome that's my something good that's a wonderful something good rowan it's your turn now you gotta tell us something good so I found this ice cream place in Los Angeles. It's called Dear Bella. It's not 
It's a bit of a hike for me, but it's all dairy-free ice cream and majority gluten-free. And it's ice cream that it has like all kinds of crazy good flavors. And you could get a cookie sandwich that's dairy-free and gluten-free. Oh, my God. I have this flavor for fall called apple pie. And it is like vanilla cinnamon ice cream with just the tiniest little slivers of cinnamon apples and like cake. I mean, I guess it's pie, right? But it's yeah. like cakey bits. And the way that I <laughs> want to live inside this pint of ice cream, <laughs> it's so good. And it be- oh, it's such a nice yum. treat because I don't get to have ridiculous flavors like that all the time. And it's just like a classic ice cream spot. Every time I go there, the people who work there are so friendly and put up with me basically like screaming and vibrating with joy like a toddler (laughs) oh i'm sure it makes their day too it's the best it's the best so it's the guilty pleasure is ice cream this week i love it or not so guilty pleasure no guilt no guilt just pleasure tracy tell us something good my something good is that a little a little while back uh when it was just a just a touch warmer um because it's turning into fall out here y'all shut up um (laughs) i think of you every single time that it rains and i'm pretty sure i've actually texted you every single time that it has rained that's my love language thank you anytime uh so my something good is that i went on this little writing retreat and it is so perfect for the two of you i can't even get over it how much you would love this it is this place that is designed for writers. Originally, it was for children's book writers, but they've expanded. And, and you know, obviously, anyone can just go to this place. But it's just uniquely crafted and, and thought through so that writers will be really effective. So it's on uh, old farmlands in the Poconos uh, in Pennsylvania. And they converted it. So the, the chicken coop is now an art studio. The granary <laughs> is now a room with um, a couple desks and some chairs for you to write in. Um, and then there's all these cabins all over the property. And you can rent out a cabin and stay there. Or you can rent out. There was a girl who was there for two weeks she booked to stay mm-hmm. there where she stayed in the, the cabin or the, the farmhouse from the 1800s. And wow. at this place, all your meals are provided for. There's chefs on site and they just make like f- literally farm fresh breakfast, lunch and dinner where they're like, yeah, I was at the farmer's market this morning and like these eggs looked really good. And there was this fresh green beans. So we'll have green beans for dinner tonight. And if you have any dietary restrictions, they'll make special meals just for you. No extra costs, no extra problems. And if you really like the food, they'll just give you the recipes they're using. <laughs> and it's like communal at dinner. So I got to know so many other writers and everyone's talking about the work they're doing and the stuff that they're working on. And it was so healing and creative and wonderful and i want to go back literally all the time always i want to live there it was just like restorative and then of course there's like hiking nearby and there's this coffee and chocolate factory 20 minutes away that we went and toured and it was just it was it was so cool and i want to take you to so badly because i think you would just be in heaven i think you'd be in heaven that's awesome did you get a lot of writing done i did which you know about but I'm going to keep it quiet for everyone else. Ha ha. <laughs> I know nothing. <laughs> ah, that's not true. You probably know about it at this point. I can't keep my mouth shut with you guys. <laughs> I, I know nothing. Our group text <laughs> is you, so if good. If you've told me, it goes, uh, it goes in one ear and out the other. So I'm excited to read when, 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 you're, when you're ready to share. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I've got too many projects going on. That's, that's the problem is you got to just like, you know, settle and pick something and like yeah. finish it. 
Oh, I know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think I you don't guys are familiar with that. with that feeling at all. I don't think that's no. <laughs> Well, Spencer, thank you for joining us today on this episode. It is such a delight every time we get to hang out with you. Thank you for having me here. I appreciate it. Thanks for letting us put you to work. Yeah. Can we steal you for one more episode on Acts of God? Yeah, absolutely. I'm so excited. This was the part that I was so excited about uh, exploring um, because there's one particular story that I've thought about since the moment somebody told me about it. Uh, so I'm excited to dive deep All right. That's a little tease. Well, thank you all so much for joining us. And remember that stories grow with the telling. So if you like what we do, tell a friend. Or tell a foe. And we'll see you soon, okay? Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our logo is by Jamie Harrison, and our music is by Taylor Ash. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes and custom merch, or find us at Willing and Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, join us next time for another round of original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. One, two, three, four, five, six. First time we did it right. Uh, 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 I was thinking the same thing. I was like, girl, know your numbers. <laughs> know your numbers. <laughs> I can count to six. I can count to six, but not not in the way you're thinking. And that's <laughs> what makes it hard. <laughs>